coming up on Better Place Project. You know, we can use science now to kind of disprove that those aren't real gods. Those aren't, you know, those are those are just metaphors or, or whatever. But the fact that the natural world like that imprints on human imagination, human mental structure, is you can't disprove that. That is scientifically confirmed by this, the latest cognitive science. And so, you know, one of the efforts here of this project is to just to get us to to see that connection between the world and the way we think. Emergence doesn't just happen on a grid. It doesn't just happen in between stars. It doesn't happen just, you know, out there in the world. It actually also happens in our heads. This is where ideas come from. Ideas are emergent by the same dynamics that stars are emergent. Make the world a place. Make the world Hey, hey, I'm Steve Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. How did we get here? And where do we go from here? In this five-part series, ecologist and founder of OICA, Dr. Rich Blundell, takes us on a journey of the cosmos. But this is way more than a history lesson about the universe. This is about you and me and everyone and everything around us, how it all came to be and how we are all connected. You see, nature has intelligence. A magnificent, sublime, complex intelligence that science is just now beginning to understand. What would it be like if we felt that intelligence inside of us? In this series, you will discover how to tap into and feel that innate intelligence that is already inside of you right now. Once humankind begins to understand this, to know this, to feel this we will be living in a very different much more beautiful world so join us on this journey it just might change your life in this episode celestia we continue to follow ecological intelligence along the path of ontological continuity but now across celestial scales we'll be discussing emergence which is as dr blendell says the unseen force of nature that invents new things, from stars to butterflies, from orcas to orchestras, to the ideas in your head. We'll be waxing philosophical about the sheer beauty and awe of the chaotic but organized universe as we chat about the golf ball experiment and mathematician John Conway's game of life, which helps explain how new life emerges. During this series, we'll be following along a series of short videos created by Dr. Blundell. To get the most out of this episode, we strongly recommend you pause this podcast right now, scroll down to the episode notes, and watch the short two videos which we'll be discussing today, Celestia and Emergence. Watch these two beautiful short films and join me right back here. And now, I bring you part two, Celestia with Dr. Rich Blundell. 
Welcome, Rich. We made it to episode two, Celestia. How you doing? Good. Good to see you again, Steve. Great to be back. All right. So speaking of Celestia, we didn't hit this in the first episode. And for those of uh, our listeners that might be wondering, how did you come up with these names, Primordia, Celestia, when you're talking about the history of the cosmos? Can you shed some light on that for us to get us started? Sure. Um, you know, if you do, if you Google this, you'll get several different versions of how people sort of divvy up the, the chronology of the cosmos. Which is exactly why I wanted to ask that, because uh, when you and I first talked about doing this a year ago, I, I Googled it. And yeah, there's there's about as many different answers to that as there are stars in the sky. Mm-hmm. Some break it down into eight, some five, some three stages. So yes, curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, the reason is because my particular fondness is for living organisms. I'm an ecologist and I study, I study the world through the lens of ecology, which is the lens of relationships. And so the way I, the way I organized it is, is basically that is in a way that highlights those particular thresholds in the story of the evolution of the cosmos that get us to understand how these thresholds that we're talking about, they're not really like, they're not really abrupt lines that, that, that create a division between what was before and what came after. So the whole idea of my topology or my, um, you know, my way of, of of organizing it is those thresholds that reveal how everything is a continuity as opposed to how anything is separate from anything else. That's the ecological worldview. It's to see everything in terms of relationships. And so I placed those thresholds in those moments of the universe that highlight the continuity, not the separation. I don't know if that makes sense. Makes so total that, sense. Well, the first one, though, was really short in terms of cosmic time. So 400,000 years. But what's important about it is that we're establishing the fundamental uh, ground rules by which ecological dynamics play out in the cosmos. And that's why it gets its own you know, title, Primordia. Celestia, this one, this one's actually the longest of them. It's, it's I think it's like... Over nine, it covers over nine billion years of con- cosmic evolution. And granted, during a lot of this particular period, not much happened. There's a whole period called the boring billions, where, where not a lot of complexity emerged. Um, but uh, it's so. So this is a long one. It covers from 400,000 years after the Big Bang, which is the cosmic microwave background radiation, to about 4.6 billion years, which is when the Earth formed. So this one's going to cover quite a bit of time. Up to 4.6 billion years ago. Ago. So Correct. about 9 billion years, as you said. Yeah. Right. Perfect. All right. So at the beginning of the the video, and a reminder to our listeners that we're following along with Rich's video series and a, a course also that he teaches. And we have a link to the video. It's just a short 10 to 12 minute video. That is so beautiful and so well done. Um, well, there's there's the video Celestia and the video Emergence, which we're gonna, we're going to be talking about both of those today, and I will put those in the episode links. But at the beginning of the Celestia video, you say, "quote In this video, we're going to continue to follow ecological intelligence along the path of ontological continuity, but now across celestial scales. These are the deeds and suffering and dust under the influence of ecological intelligence." 
We used to think of the night sky as static and eternal, but look up any, on any clear night and every astronomical object you see is evolving in relation to something else. So tell us again, Rich, what ecological intelligence is and what you mean when you say ontological continuity and why it's so important right now. Yeah, that's the big word. We should just unpack that a little bit. But what you just said, I think, encapsulates it perfectly, that we can look up at the night sky tonight and see these ecological dynamics playing out. We're, we're not trained to do that. We're not taught in our you know formal educational system how to see it as the matrix of creation of which we are embedded inextricably that's not how we're trained to see it that's how we right. that's how we feel it often sure. that's that's sort of the the, the the ground and the and the basis of so many spiritual traditions and so many you know, attempts at spiritual enlightenment or spiritual fulfillment this is why the, the sky calls us to this sure we right? feel the wonder yeah. but when we sit on in a classroom it's down yeah. to math in fact right. i took an astronomy course at illinois state my freshman year and I was so excited to take this course because I saw the wonder of it and I got, and I had no idea. It was a, it was a math class. And I, I dropped out literally by, by week two It's like, this is way too complex for me. And, uh, and it's just, uh, I wasn't now I would be ready for that side of it. But when I was 18, I wasn't ready for the science behind it yet. I just want to learn about the, you know, the wonder. And yes, I wanted to know how far the stars away from the moon, the sun and how they were created and all of that. But it was just science, to your point. There was nothing about the beauty and the magic and and, and all of that. That actually is tragic, you know, because it, it, it. And also, not only is it tragic because we we forfeit that sense of wonder, and we and we we we're trained how to give it up. We're now suffering the consequences of all that. We're suffering the consequences of giving up that sense of being connected to something bigger, to being connected to something that's creative, that extends from the stars right down to the surface of our planet. I mean, and so that's what we're trying. I'm, that's what I'm trying to do here is to reestablish that felt sense that's scientifically informed. Like, let me put it this way: throughout this whole series, I'm not going to say anything that's not in line with the scientific orthodox. I'm using completely orthodox science. The only thing I'm doing differently is interpreting it through the lens of an ecologist, which is also a science. To So that that all I'm trying to do is to heal and restore that has been taken away. Uh, and so that's what this is all about. So I'm glad you brought that up. But to get back to your question about ecological intelligence, I think it's worth just restating what that means. Ecological intelligence is the intelligence of nature. It's a relational intelligence. It emerges, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It emerges from the relational dynamics of nature. And here's the other really important part. We can feel it. We can feel that intelligence. We can feel it working within us. And I believe once you become familiar and comfortable with that intelligence, you can feel when it's right and when it's wrong. I should probably use the, what I mean is right relationship versus wrong relationship. You can actually feel the difference between being in right relationship with that intelligence and not. So when your intelligence is aligned with that intelligence, you're actually aligned with the creative life force of the universe. And to scale that up a little bit, why this is important, if your culture is aligned with that intelligence, then you're living in a culture that is rightly aligned with nature's intelligence. And right now, 
all the evidence that I can see suggests we're not living in that that way collectively. Sure. So that's what this is, is an attempt to to restore that alignment between the way we think, the way we feel, the way we create, and the way we organize and coordinate our culture to be aligned with nature. So love it. Okay, if we could, I wanted to play a clip from the Celestia video, and I wanted to get your comments on it. So a spiraling galaxy should not be thought of as a physical object in space, but more like a dynamical process, more like life. This model of spiral arm propagation also applies to the way infections can move through biological populations. The same rules governing galactic spirals show up in human pandemics. So even a galaxy is an ecological system. The lesson here is that thriving in any ecosystem calls for ecological intelligence. The material byproducts of stellar metabolism are the elements that our world is made of, including us. The gold in our banks, the iron in our blood, the calcium in our bones, the oxygen in our lungs, and even the myths of our ancestors are the gifts of celestial ecology. Every galaxy manifests many interstellar forces. The emergent patterns of matter and light create communities of astounding beauty, longevity, destruction, and creation. There's a kind of celestial culture out there. This was really powerful for me, comparing the model of a spiraling galaxy to that of an infection moving through our population. And, and also, I love what you said about the gifts of celestial ecology that are brought to us you know, the iron in our blood, the gold in our banks, the oxygen in our lungs. Just wow. That, well, what you just heard was really another way of saying what I said earlier, which is that um, that there are, there are continuities, patterns that show up across the scales, whether it's the quantum scale of things that went on in the Big Bang to interstellar and celestial scales that we're, that we're talking about now to biological scales about how life emerges to interpersonal scales, like how relationships evolve to social level phenomena, like pandemics, things like that. There are dynamics at play that reveal the deep continuity that, that, that I'm talking about. So you jumped ahead there to galaxies, right? And so galaxies, you know, it takes a while for, Dang it. I'm getting too excited. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, 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 that's okay. I think I think it's I think it's fine, but let's see if we can't work our way up to there. So let's get back to the cosmic microwave background radiation, which was that pattern from which the relationships inherent and implicit in those in that scatter plot, new things emerge. The first new things to emerge from that um are stars. It took a while. It took you know, at least a couple of hundred million years for the st first stars to emerge from that pattern. And as I was saying earlier, they emerged in the quieter areas where 
where things could congregate, where, you know, if it's a high energy environment, things tend not to cohere with each other. But in the quieter areas that are cooler, it allows the primordial elements that were created in the Big Bang, primarily hydrogen, some helium, and just trace amounts of lithium, can come together under the forces of gravity. And as as they come together, a new structure, a new a new thing, a new emergent property is happening in the universe. Okay. And the first ones are these very simple but gigantic stars. Like, you know, stars come in a range of sizes. The very first stars would have been absolutely huge because they're forming out in these wide open expanses. But they would have been relatively simple because there wasn't a lot of complexity accumulating in the cosmos. So the first stars are. They pull together the hydrogen and the helium created in the Big Bang. They, they pull it together into a tighter and tighter configuration. Gravity really kicks in. And as it as gravity increases and, and it gets smaller and smaller and compressed, it gets hotter and hotter. The hotter and hotter it gets, it starts to kick into another one of the fundamental forces, the nuclear force. So what you end up getting is a relationship between the gravitational attraction and heat and 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 implosion with the repelling force of the nuclear forces trying to force this thing apart. And what ends up happening is this is really elegant. As these four, as these materials come together, they're also being pushed apart until an equilibrium is reached. At that point, the, what we think of as a nuclear furnace kicks on. It's like switching on a light. And at that moment, the first stars can ignite in the universe and just they flood the surrounding area with photons, with light streaming out. And so, but what you've got here is a, is an entity, a star that is not only compressing in on itself due to the forces of gravity, but expanding out from itself under the nuclear repulsion forces. And it's kind of like an equilibrium, a balance is reached between in and out and the resulting um, one of the results of this process that's known as nucleosynthesis is that it releases photons and it fuses simpler elements into more complex elements. And so you get beryllium and nitrogen, and phosphorus and carbon and all the things that will later be used by living things are now created in this kind of like a living star. That's the whole point of this is to show that there's a there's a kind of stellar metabolism that's not the same as biological metabolism but it's a kind of metabolism it's a kind of it's a kind of metabolic process that creates this kind of living organism called a star that's 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 living in this kind of dynamic state it's creating heat creating energy creating complexity the 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 only way that i can describe what's going on here is there's a creative force right? There's no life in the universe as we know it, our kind of life, but it's still a kind of life. It's kind of a precursor to life at the scale of a star. And it's churning out these heavier and heavier elements. Okay. But every star, so this is what I'm describing is the birth and life of a star, but every star also goes through a death, just like life is birth, life, and death. And so what ends up happening with some stars is that are, you know, that are especially these huge ones in the early universe, they rapidly 
deplete their reserves of hydrogen and suddenly gravity takes over and wins the balance war. It's not a war, but this balance gets the asymmetry shifts toward gravity and gravity wins and it pulls everything in at this incredibly increasing rate until you get what's kind of like a little big bang, but it implodes on itself. The neutrinos are the neutrons are ripped apart again. Neutrinos and all kinds of gamma rays are released, and you get this supernova explosion. It's just like this percussion spews all the elements that were that were created, and it, it ejects them out into outer space, and then they become available for the next generation of stars. This is why I talk about the first starry night. What I'm talking about now is the end of the first starry night and the precursor to the next starry night, okay? And so it's it's redistributed the energy, it's redistributed the matter throughout the universe. And so this is what the early universe looks like. It, it's this constant cycling of, of materials into more and more complex. There's all kinds of other things, I'm going long here, but there's all kinds of other things going on in the background too. Those same fundamental forces are now acting on this ejecta and this matter that's distributed all around. And you get to and you start to see new patterns emerging. We see what's called the mega scale structure of the universe. And if and if you Google the mega scale structure of the universe, you'll see it, it it looks remarkably like a kind of nervous system network or a mycelial network. There are these patterns that show up. But instead of using like neurotransmitters, like a like a nervous system does, it's using photons to push material around and to a kind of communication network is established in the background of the cosmos. I know I'm I'm using I'm 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 using this confused language on purpose to to reestablish the continuity between what we think of purely material and physical forces to things that are more biological and then ultimately psychological forces that we're going to get into later. So I just want to establish that continuity. So if you have stars and they're all distributed now throughout the universe, what happens is those very same fundamental forces can start acting on stars at a whole different scale. And what we start to see are new structures, nebulae and galaxies. So the first spiral galaxies start to form. And so this is now, now yeah. we're getting up to the part yeah. where you played in the video, where we're starting to see how, how galactic structures can form and, and, Here's a, here's a really interesting finding. Um, I, I'm, I'll, I'll see if I can finish this quickly. No, it's all good. I'm going long. Um, so what we have are these, what appear to be randomly distributed stars coming together under, again, the force of gravity. And there's this thing called the conservation of angular momentum. And as these stars sort of move in toward the center, their, their trajectories are shifted and as you shift the trajectories, it kind of creates a curved motion. Well, that curved motion is where the spiral of a spiral galaxy comes from. And so you see these stars starting to move in these spiral patterns that get established over and over and over again in different parts, in independent parts of the universe. Actually, there are no independent parts because everything's connected. But the point is, in other areas, you get these same spiral structures, okay, which are revealing this deeper the deeper magic of the universe expressing itself. And so what we're now realizing though, is that we can use mathematical models to help us understand how these spiral patterns emerge. And what we're realizing now is that those same models that are used to 
to map and to predict spiral galaxies also fit the patterns of how things like viruses or even information can move through a population. So there are these, there are these deep, I'm not going to call them algorithms, but there are these deep patterns of nature that can show up across scales. This becomes really important later when we start to think about how fractals work. But the point is that even a huge spiral galaxy with a trillion stars exhibits the same uh, dynamics as a living system. And that's why a galaxy can be, can be thought of as a kind of life. We don't, we're not bound to thinking. First of all, when we get into the, the part where we talk about the emergence of life, there really is, there is no definitive definition of what life is versus what life isn't. And so the point is that same kind of ambiguity, what it's really talking, what it's really pointing at is the continuity between something that can operate at the scale of a galaxy or a star and something that can operate at the scale of a, of a human being in an ecosystem. So I'll stop there because I know that was a lot. And, but I guess I'm just trying to say that, <laughs> you know, if you look at the, if you look at the science. And by the way, I haven't said anything on unscientific. All this science that I'm talking about is purely part of the orthodox scientific. The only thing I'm doing is interpreting through a relational and ecological lens. I love it. All right. If we could now talk a little further about emergence, the video that you did on emergence for me was, was mind blowing. And I want to read a quick quote from that. The unseen force of nature that invents new things, from stars to butterflies, from orcas to orchestras, to the ideas in your head, emergence is the creative engine behind everything. And, you know, in, in episode one, Primordia, we talked about the heat variations between the orange, red, yellow, and blue, and that from these variations in temperature, everything in the world, including us, came to be. And I love, I, I guess the, the reason why emergence, I think, resonates with me so much because, you know, almost by definition, emergence can be felt. And there's an example that you show in the, in the video that's the ping pong experiment where there's, um, were they ping pong or maybe they were golf balls? I can't remember. I think they're golf balls. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they were golf balls. But there is a series of golf balls all hanging from different uh, length of strings. And they pull them back all equally and let them go. And that visual demonstration, I think, just so beautifully articulates articulates for, for those of us that are right-brained and I'm visual-oriented. It just it showed... The chaotic nature of what takes place, and then the the beautiful, like you said, you were I think hesitant to use algorithms, but but the beautiful patterns that can emerge out of what seems like chaos, and it was just that was a beautiful moment for you know for me. Any other or thoughts you'd like to add about what emergence is and why? why it does connect with us so much on a human level? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, but but I thank you for pointing that out because I think what I was trying to convey 
through that little demonstration was what emergence feels like a, a beyond what we could calculate because technically we could calculate what happens you could calculate the pendulum you know arc of each one of those things absolutely you, know, you could but in the absence of doing that you're allowed to just feel it and there are moments as you watch those balls swing that you feel something new you feel something oh like a pattern emerges and also something new emerges well the point there was just to give you an opportunity to feel it to feel what emergence feels like because once you tune yourself or once you kind of exercise that that what garta would call a, an organ of perception once you exercise that organ of perception for emergence you start to feel it everywhere and um it's, and it's like narrative in, in like the first film where we were talking about narrative once you understand what narrative is you start to see it you feel it operating everywhere same thing with emergence once you know what to feel for you can start to feel it um and you know as you were saying emergence accounts for anything that's new <laughs> any novelty that that arises does so through this process of emergence um and then the, and then one of the theories is that these emergent phenomena get kind of frozen in like they get they get that the that the world remembers it remembers that beauty and so it it keeps it that's why a galaxy can form in two different areas of the universe or a spiral shell of a snail and the spiral you know um, of the double helix or whatever that's why they show up again because these are these are right these are exemplary of right relation so they persist anyway so that's again, so cool no no this is but... to me um yeah just some of the coolest uh stuff in all of this is 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 emergence because like you said the, the same patterns in a in a in a shell of a of a snail that you know that that appear in the in the constellations i mean you know that that is no accident and i think to add to what you just said about you know the the you know the the felt sense i think the reason why we are in awe when we see something that moves us, whether it be a sunset or whether it be, you know, the, the pattern in the sand, you know, from the waves crashing or, or what have you is, is because all of that is us. It's in us. It's, yes. it's, it's who we, these patterns are inside of us as well. And I think that's why they reverberate through us because we are all one. We are all connected. Yeah. We all are yeah. stardust and plasma and iron. And yeah, it's easy to think that, you know, in those moments that, oh, how wonderful nature is showing itself. It's not just showing itself, it's showing you yourself. You know, exactly. That's, we are inextricable from this process. And toward the end of the celestial video, I talk a little bit about how. You know, the ancient Greeks looked up at the night sky and they projected their narratives. They projected their narratives up there, the tales of, you know, mythic gods and things sure. like that. To sh and in that way, the, the stars, the cosmos had started to interact with the psychology of humans. 
you know, this is a kind of an early way in which the cosmos imprinted itself on human beings through the stories that we tell. I mean, there's this deep connection between the way we think and the way we identify with with the world. It's already showing up. You know, there's this very clear link between the cosmos and the human mind, consciousness. You know, we can use science now to kind of disprove that those aren't real gods. Those aren't, you know, those aren't, those are just metaphors or, or whatever. But the fact that the natural world like that imprints on human imagination, human mental structure is, you can't disprove that. That is scientifically confirmed by this, the latest cognitive science. And so, you know, one of the efforts here of this project is to just to get us to to see that connection between the world and the way we think. Emergence doesn't just happen on a grid. It doesn't just happen in between stars. It doesn't happen just, you know, out there in the world. It actually also happens in our heads. This is where ideas come from. Ideas are emergent by the same dynamics that stars are emergent. And I think once we get more comfortable with this idea, <laughs> which is kind of a that's that's an idea folding over onto itself. Um, once we get comfortable with it, we can we can begin to participate in much much more ecologically aligned ways with the world. I don't know if that makes any sense. And again, I I, I hate to keep getting philosophical about this, but I, I, what I'm hoping is that the videos can do like the scientific lifting. They can do the they can tell the story of the cosmos, mm -hmm. and then we can use this time. To, to just to dive a little bit more in deeply into the interpretation of that science. So that's why this tends to be more, you know, <laughs> um, lyrical than the video. Well, I, I think a philosophical or lyrical approach is warranted because this perspective shift, mm -hmm. if you will, it's, it's new for all of us, us being humanity. And I think we need to have some dialogue to just wrap our head around this. But I I want to bring up, uh, and this is from the emergence video. You highlighted mathematician John Conway's game of life as a possible model for the emergence of life, and it's really cool. Well, that's why they had developed it. They were trying to come up with. They were trying to be able to conceptualize how could life begin from non-life, and so they they simplified it. They simplified it down to a to a mathematical model, created a user interface that you could see visually. And then that's what you're seeing. It's a grid with little little squares. Yeah, it's it's a grid with little squares, but they set just a few rules. Yep. For a space that is populated, each cell with one or no neighbors dies, as if by solitude. Each cell with four or more neighbors dies, as if by overpopulation. Each cell with two or three neighbors survives. And creates. Exactly. Um, for a space that is empty or unpopulated, each space with three neighbors becomes populated. So yeah. the, the rules are simple, but hard to keep track of. Um, but the point there is that they're very simple. Like these are not hard to follow rules. They're hard to all keep, you know, they're hard to talk about and not see visually. But what was so fascinating is that you gave an example of you created a little pattern with just like three, four or five little box. 
and then you just click go and you let it go following those rules. And then you kind of narrate what happens as, you know, you started molding and, uh, and you can speed up, by the way. I didn't realize this. I played around with it for like an hour after I watched that video. But, but you can speed up the speed with, it, with which it, uh, it goes. And it even like broke into two little different groups and colonies. And then a couple of scragglers would go off. And I think you use the analogy that could be an explorer going off to explore, you know, or what have you fascinating example of of what can happen in life and what happens if we overpopulate underpopulate we're alone what have you right and what you might notice there and what i was very clear to say is that i'm making an interpretation about what i'm seeing on the screen okay so i'm i'm taking the permission that i have okay to use the cognitive apparatus that nature has provided me with to make an interpretation of something that I'm seeing in the world. So what I'm saying is I'm asserting that I have that right as a as a thinking entity, okay? I have a right to use that thinking to to see the world in a certain way. That's that's a that's a given right, you know? It's it's it should be self-evident that 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 that's what minds are for is to is to is to think and to make interpretations. And so I'm clear to say that that's what I'm doing. That's how we participate. That's not making up a fiction. It's participating in the em emergent process because what happens is what, what you'll notice is that the very simple the very simple um versions the iteration very simple iterations they're tracking the relationships between yellow squares, right? Okay. And so you do that and then you what you notice is that there'll be groups of yellow squares doing things that are now interacting with other groups of yellow squares, right? So you've gone from yellow squares interacting to organisms of yellow squares interacting and something happens. All I'm doing is extending that very same process to me. Now it's about groups of yellow squares, little organisms on the screen interacting with another organism that's sitting there looking at the screen. Do you see that? So yeah. all I've really done was extend the process, you know, into on this dimension, which, which continuity says is, is the right thing to do because it's all continuous. And when I do that, when I participate, that's what makes this creative. So yeah. do you see what I mean? And that's another instance of being able to feel it. When you when you suddenly see these things emerge, it feels like it felt when you saw the the, the golf ball swinging and see, you saw these beautiful patterns. It's the same feeling. That's an indication that you're, you're you're seeing something. You know, you're feeling something, something important, something useful and relevant in nature. And I can imagine somebody sitting there watching this that maybe is suffering from a little depression or having a bad day or what have you, and then they come across that and they watch it and they realize what's going on and they say. Wow, that's badass. That's that's cool. And and they all of a sudden feel excitement and their dog in the corner senses, hey, he's happy and excited. And he comes over and you know and he pets oh, his dog and then he goes outside in a better mood. I mean, that that is kind of to extend what you just said, that uh that the patterns keep going accordingly. Well and, and in future in the next couple of episodes that we do, we're gonna see that there are real mechanisms that have evolved that 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 not explain but 
that confirm that 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 feeling is contagious like that 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 when when you feel empowered to participate like that it does elevate it does literally empower us to participate and that feels good and that's why it comes packaged with a kind of contentedness a kind of happiness that we don't currently have and need so yeah how can we use this knowledge of ecological intelligence and and how we are all inter- interconnected and the impact of small changes in one part of a system on how that affects the entire system how can this understanding inform our approach to addressing challenges in the world today like climate change biodiversity loss pandemics as you mentioned earlier mm. well i'm not here to prescribe anything this is not you know about proclaiming what's the right way to be i'm just here to say that there are sources of um, intelligence sources of beauty sources of belong you know the sense of belonging that i think can help us heal because it, what i see is that so many of these maladies that we talk about whether it's the meaning crisis the meta crisis the anthropocene the 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 armageddon whatever you want to call it you know a lot of this uh, i think stems ultimately from our sense of alienation and disconnection from something bigger the world um or 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 whatever and that's so knowing this stuff knowing how the, the cosmos operates and how is endowed upon us how the cosmos endows us with its intelligence i think can you know it can help us on a personal level and then collectively that personal level accumulates in a in a society that is more intelligent it has it has the wisdom of nature um and it, and 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 you we can decide to work with it and and so i'm not here to solve those problems because I don't think those are problems. I think they're actually symptoms of a deeper problem. And I think this understanding that I'm trying to articulate here can ultimately respond to those deep problems by default. It'll just because when you when you see the world this way, things that you thought mattered, you realize they don't really matter. And and the things that you had an instant an intuition that mattered, they do matter. They matter the most. And that has a way of filtering out the, the bull, the bullshit. <laughs> sure. And so, yeah, that's how I think it can ultimately um, manifest. Yeah, and you used a word, you used the word collective, you know, just a moment ago, and and you know, we've had thought leaders on the show, spiritual leaders, um, experts talking about non-duality and you know the oneness of 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 all of this, and I think this knowledge of everything that you you are teaching uh i firmly believe can play a huge role in in a shift in our collective consciousness for sure yeah that's that's the idea without having to you know proclaim or shame or you know tell people that they're doing things wrong it's really just about showing them showing them what I see and um, inviting people to, to see it with me and to um, just let it 
let it work however it will. Um, and yeah. and what is the common thread in so many of these discussions, whether it be from a spiritual standpoint or from a just a self-help or from a how to be a happier human or what have you, it all comes back to that we're not in search of something out there. So in other words, we're not trying to obtain or learn this about the universe so our lives will improve. What we're, t- what we're really trying to do is, is to reconnect to ourself, reconnect to who we are. So it's, it's, it's more about going home than it is about going anywhere else. Right, I guess is the well, best way. I would the way I say it. it sometimes is, and I think it's relevant to this episode. If you want to know the past, use a telescope and look outward. If you want to know the future, use your heart and look inward. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. All right. I think on that note, anything we've left out in Celestia that we want to cover before we wrap up here? I don't think so. I think just to know that um, this this material that is covered here creates a bridge, a bridge between what we think of as the physics of the world um, to the living world. That's that's what I think that this episode is designed to do: is to show that um, there are forces at play that reveal the deepest continuities between the cosmos and our inner worlds, our inner identity. And that's, yeah, so that's it. That's what this is about. My hope is that we accomplish this today. Thank you, Rich. You want to give us a teaser for next week? Sure. Next week, we're going to look at, um, we're going to pick up the story 4.6 billion years ago uh, when in a forgotten corner of the galaxy, there was a supernova explosion that uh, precipitated the emergence of a little solar protoplanetary accretion disk. <laughs> and then that from that, the Earth formed. And we're going to tell the story of how the Earth formed and and how it got how how life got rolling on planet Earth. Can't wait. Thank you much, Rich. Appreciate it. All right, Steve. See you then. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review, as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind-the-scenes info, please visit our website at betterplaceproject.org, where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner and leave us a message or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproj, and you'll find me at Instagram at Steve Norris Official. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world.